Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, we are uh, continuing this morning. We are on uh, the second to last week of a uh, sermon series in the book of First Peter. And so this morning we'll be in First Peter chapter 5. Our scripture reading today is from First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness for the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks so much, Haley. Well, if you've, uh, if you've been a part of Christ Church in town for any length of time, you've probably heard me uh, share stories or give quotations uh, from a man who is a bit of a hero of mine, uh, 20th century missionary and theologian, Leslie Newbegin. He was a, uh, a Presbyterian missionary from England to South India. He actually went to uh, India as a Presbyterian and he left a bishop uh, because uh, just through the work that he had done there, they, or they uh, united uh, a large number of the churches uh, of South India. Uh, including both Presbyterian and Anglican tradition churches. But anyway, uh, Newbegin uh, became one of our brightest and sharpest and most faithful thinkers on Christian mission uh, in the late modern world. And Newbegin tells this story that I think paints a poignant picture of the life of the church and helps us to understand the situation that Peter is in as he writes to his church's his friends uh, in Asia Minor in this letter. Newbegin says this, he says, I've often stood at the door of a little church with the Christian congregation seated on the ground in the middle of a great circle of Hindus and Muslims standing around. So here's the picture. It'd be Newbegin uh, as a minister uh, over churches, some in large cities, some in small villages, but standing in the church, teaching uh, the new church, probably the first church, the first Christian worshiping community in this area. And he's sitting there and he's teaching them, this new Christian church, and all around them are their neighbors. Their neighbors, very few of them uh, hold the Christian belief system. Most of them uh, in India would have been either Hindu or Muslim. And so perhaps out of curiosity, they're standing around on the outside, Newbegin in the middle, the church around, them, around him, seated on the floor, and around their Hindu and Muslim neighbors observing. Newbegin goes on. As I opened the scriptures and tried to preach the word of God to them, 
I've always known that my words would only carry weight, would only be believed if those standing around could recognize in those sitting in the middle that the promises of God were being fulfilled. If they could see that this new community in the village represented a new kind of body in which the old divisions of caste and education and temperament were being transcended in a new form of brotherhood. If they could not see anything of the kind, they would not be likely to believe. And so here's Newbegin, a Christian missionary, someone who's left so much uh, and loved uh, the Indian people and immersed himself in their, their language and their culture. And here he is uh, preaching the message of the gospel to the Christian church gathered. And yet he knows that his message will only be believed by the community if when they look at the church, they see something that makes the message credible. If they see something in the church of the reconciling power of the gospel, if they see something in the lives of the Christian community, something uh, that's attractive and beautiful and compelling, that demonstrates the character of Christ and his message. I love that picture because I think it is the picture of the church, right? I think Peter knew that that was the situation that his churches were in, right? Under the Roman Empire, where most of their neighbors did not believe what they believed. He's called them an outpost of exiles and strangers living in the world. And so Peter knows that the message of the gospel will only have credibility to the Romans around them if in the church they see a different kind of community a different kind of life. And friends, I believe that that is exactly the position of the church in our day, right? That our neighbors who circle around us, perhaps not literally as in Newbegin's picture, but the friends that we live our lives with, our family members, our neighbors, those that we're friends with on social media, those that we work with, that they observe us, that they know us, that they see us. And the credibility of the gospel message will only be credible to them to the extent that they see the character of Christ worked out in our interactions, in our body, in our service, in our love, in our vocations. Our neighbors are watching and they're looking at the life of the church and determining the truthfulness of our hope in light of that. Now, I grew up uh, hearing things like this, and the primary idea that I had, I think, was that what our neighbors were looking at the church primarily about was to find out whether or not we smoked or drank or went to R-rated movies or cussed too much, right? That the main thing that the witness of the church was about was about our abstinence from certain moral pitfalls. And yet, if you look at, now Peter is concerned with the moral formation of his community, right? In chapter four, he says things like, uh, don't be given to your former way of life of drunkenness and debauchery and orgies, right? So there is a part of this that is about the moral formation of the Christian church. But overwhelmingly, his focus is on the posture of the church, in taking on a posture of Christ-like submission, love, and service. It's about the capacity of the church to be a new kind of community, marked by new kinds of relationships, marked not by the vying for power, competing with one another, but rather laying down their lives 
for one another and for the church and for their neighbors. I'm going to read this one sentence in Newbegin again. Whether the new community in the village represented a new kind of body in which the old divisions of caste, education, and temperament were being transcended in a new brotherhood. The divisions that plagued Indian society, a rigid caste system, sharp divisions between uh, the well-educated and the poorly educated, the upwardly mobile and the permanently downtrodden that they should be able to look in the church and see unity in the areas in which they would be used to seeing division. To put it into our world, our neighbors ought to be able to, to look at the church and say, you know what, out here in the world, black folks and white folks seem to be full of suspicion and judgment at one another. They seem to be judging one another almost entirely by prejudice and separated in their lives. But in there in the church, uh, they seem to love one another. They share their stories. They talk through their differences. And they work through it with brotherly love. They ought to be able to say, you know what? Out here in the world, Republicans and Democrats are at one another's throats. The donkeys kicking at the elephants and the elephants kicking at the donkeys. They view one another with suspicion and judgment and prejudice and anger, refusing to offer one another charity or the benefit of the doubt. But in there, in the church, there seems to be something that transcends those differences, a unity that is deeper than the differences of opinion and allows one another to reason together as respectful human beings in a family. Out here in the world, Rich and poor may hardly ever interact, but in that community, they share their lives, they share their stories, they share their possessions, they share their influence with one another in a beautiful way. The message of 1 Peter, the message that Leslie Newbegin is talking about, and the message that, that I'm suggesting, is that the church is the way that the message of the gospel gets lived out and proclaimed in flesh and blood. But now the problem uh, for our church and our situation uh, is that we are not in India, right? We are not the first church in a community that formerly held other beliefs. We're not a first generation Christian church in Asia Minor surrounded by Romans where all of our neighbors are, are saying, hmm, a church, I wonder what that's all about. No, we live... Uh, in the United States, uh, and in the Southern U.S. at that, in which you likely don't have a neighbor that when you say you're a Christian goes, huh, a Christian, I've never heard of that. What's that all about? When you say you go to Christ Church in town, they're not likely to say a church. I've never heard of one of those. No, instead, we live in a world where most of our neighbors, whether they be non-believers, whether they be believers of a different faith tradition, whether they be people who uh, once grew up in the church and have left it behind, most of our neighbors have some experience with the church out of which they've already formed certain assumptions about the life of the church. And uh, you don't have to be uh, a social scientist to know that many of those uh, experiences are not good. Surveys of non-churchgoing uh, folks, when asked about the life of the church, 
usually come down to negative experiences, experiences of, of hypocrisy, of judgmentalism, of self-righteousness. They've experienced the church as a toxic environment, one of hypocritical leadership, sometimes even of abusive leadership, covered over by leaders who are hungry to preserve their image and to preserve power. They've often been exposed to judgmental and critical uh, community life, community lives marked by gossip, by division, by criticism. And so they're not formulating uh, their assumptions about Christianity in a vacuum, but oftentimes out of experiences of toxicity in the church. And so the question uh, before us, the question that Peter is dealing with here, is how do you detoxify the church? How do you build a church that is healthy and safe? A church where the experience of the life of the church is one of love, of humility, one of acceptance, one of truth, one of mutual care. How do we detox the church? And for Peter, uh, the antidote that he's going to offer for the toxicity of the church comes down to one word. He's going to have other words, but the word that is at the center of this section is humility. Humility. Look at verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's going to have words here for uh, the elders, for the leaders in the church. He's going to have words for those who are not in leadership in the church. But his word to both, whether you're in leadership in the church of some kind, whether it's an elder or a deacon or a deaconess or a, uh, a teacher, um, a group leader, right? Whatever, whatever shape your leadership takes, or you're one who's being led in the context of the church. He says, all of you together put on humility. For Peter, pride is the cancer. Pride is the thing that undercuts health and makes for a toxic church environment. And the humility of Christ is the antidote. The humility of Christ is the secret sauce. It's the magic that makes the church work, that makes the church a safe, life-giving, gospel-witnessing, credible community. He starts with the call to humility in the church's leadership. Starts in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory. Listen, Peter is calling them to humility. And in doing so, the way that he does it is he's modeling humility towards them. Notice that he refers to himself simply as a fellow elder among other elders, right? This is Peter. This is one of Jesus's 12 disciples. This is not only one of the 12, this was really the leader of the 12. He, was, uh, he made up one of the three that were Jesus's closest associates, Peter, James, and John. Beyond that, he was the leader of the early church. So he was, in so many ways, the, the chief of the apostles. And yet, he doesn't take a one-up position on them. He doesn't take a position of authority and say, hey, guys, get your acts together. He doesn't say, listen to me, I'm an apostle, and I'm telling you how to do it. 
Although Peter and Paul are capable of doing that uh, when, it, when, when it suited them and when it was necessary. Here, Peter takes a posture as one of a group of equals. He says, I am a fellow elder. And as one of your fellow elders, I'm coming with, to you with this encouragement. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Peter picks up on the word that really is the, the metaphor for Christian leadership throughout the pages of the Bible. The metaphor of the shepherd. That a leader wasn't meant to be uh, a princely lord who ruled over his people. He wasn't meant to be a warrior who subjugated his people. He was meant to relate to them like a shepherd would to his sheep, with love, with care, with foresight, with protection, with strength, but with tenderness. And so Peter says, as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. He leads the way in humility. And it's always worth noting, you know, Peter was not, a, this is not Peter's natural tendency. Peter was not by temperament a gentle, humble kind of guy. If you read the pages of the Gospels, Peter is most often brash and arrogant, confident of his own goodness. Peter uh, is not someone who uh, was reluctantly pushed or drawn into leadership. He was someone who tried to take it. Peter was very often someone whose own attitude and whose own arrogance and whose own quickness to speak got in his way. So Peter's humility here is a hard-won humility. And it's a humility that came into his life through brokenness. It's a humility that came into his life through his own sin and experience of grace. Right? Remember when, when Jesus began to talk about his death. When Jesus began to try to talk to his disciples about the reality of his coming crucifixion, and he said, actually, all of you are going to scatter and abandon me. Peter said, uh-uh, not me. Even if these other 11 jokers run away from you, I'm going to be the one who holds fast to you. I will never, ever, ever disown you. And within a few chapters, Peter's cowardice and his weakness has been revealed. Three times he's denied even knowing Jesus. In the moment of testing, Peter was proven a coward. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter is covered in shame and in guilt. And what does Jesus do with Peter? He doesn't castigate him. He doesn't disown him. He doesn't kick him out of the club. He doesn't say, Peter, I was going to use you in the church, but no, I don't use cowards like you. No, he appears to Peter. He fixes him breakfast. He sits down three times. He asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And just as three times Peter had denied him, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. And every time Jesus tells him uh, in three different ways in that story from John 21, Tells him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Tend to my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus has given Peter the job description of a shepherd. Now, sufficiently broken, sufficiently humbled, he says, Peter, you're not going to rule over the church like a king, but you do still get to tend them as a shepherd. 
In fact, now finally you're qualified to tend them as a shepherd because you've learned through a familiarity with your own brokenness, through your own weakness, through your own need of grace, what a shepherd does, that a shepherd loves, that a shepherd forgives, that a shepherd restores. And so Peter says now, he says to my fellow shepherds, right? Just as I've been given this calling to shepherd, I'm talking to you as my fellow shepherds, fellow leaders in the church of Jesus. He tells them, verse 2, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful, shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Right, this, is, this is Peter's instructions to the, to the elders. He's saying, don't, don't domineer over people. Don't, uh, don't command them with a heavy hand. Right? Remember what Jesus' charge to Peter was. It was feed my sheep, tend to my sheep. It wasn't go and get yourself some, some sheep of your own. Right? It wasn't go and build a flock of your own. And so Peter says, these sheep are not yours to domineer over. Right? These are Jesus's people. Right? The church belongs to Jesus. In John chapter 10, he tells us, I am the good shepherd. Right? Jesus is the shepherd of our souls, the shepherd um, that means that, that beyond him we shall not want. Peter reminds him of this in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right, friends, the, the message of the gospel is that Jesus is your connection to the life of God. Right? Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Though each of us, because of our sin and waywardness, is separated from God, Jesus is the one who draws us back into the life of God. That in him, God himself has taken on flesh and come towards us overcoming our sin, our brokenness, and our death, that Jesus himself is our shepherd. Right? This was a lot of what the Protestant Reformation pushed back against in the medieval church. Right? It was the idea that you needed intermediaries between you and Jesus. Right? That between uh, the person and, the, and, and God himself, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, wasn't enough of a mediator. That between them, we needed, between us and God, we needed this system of saints and intercessors. And beyond that, that we needed human priests to be mediators between humanity and God. And the Protestant reformers said, no, no, no. The message of the gospel, part of it is the priesthood of all believers, right? That you, every man, woman, and child is a priest before God in Christ. Right, that by virtue of your faith, you can go to God by yourself without the intermediary, the intermediary work of a priest to offer your prayers, the simple prayers of a child. Father, help me. Father, hear me. I'm scared. I'm worried. I need that each one of us can go to God directly because Jesus himself is our shepherd. He alone brings our hearts and our souls to God. But, but sometimes 
this principle, uh, especially in when you, when you take that principle of the priesthood of all believers, one that Peter champions and affirms, remember he's told them already, you are a kingdom of priests. But when you combine that reformed, uh, reformational biblical notion of the priesthood of all believers with the Western idealized notion of the autonomous individual, it can come out into a kind of relationship to the church that says, you know what? I don't need anybody, right? I relate to God by myself. I make up my own mind on things. I am my own person. And so the priesthood of all believers, and sometimes in our context, gets translated into the autonomy of all believers. And yet what Peter says here is, what if Jesus, the great shepherd, if his plan to shepherd you is to shepherd you through flesh and blood human beings, was to care for you as your shepherd through human shepherds, not exclusively, not for you to follow them blindly, disregarding the, you know, taking your eyes off of your true shepherd. But his message is that you need actual people, as flawed and as broken as they might be, as imperfect as any human shepherd could be. You need real people in your life. Yes, you need the the community of flesh and blood people in the church loving you and caring for you, encouraging you and challenging you. But within that body, you need leadership. You need men and women to lead, to teach. Some of those are going to be set apart and called to be elders. You need them to shepherd and you need to trust in that context. Harold Sheckenbill, uh, there's a 30% chance I'm saying his name right, uh, is a Lutheran pastor who, who plays on a metaphor that I love. Uh, he's talking about how in the Bible, uh, pastors are viewed as under shepherds of the great shepherd. And he says, really, to think about it, we might think of ourselves as sheepdogs, right? That the job of a pastor, the job of an elder uh, is the humble job of a sheepdog. If you ever watch a sheepdog, a shepherd lead a flock of sheep, using his dogs, the dogs are just there running circles around, trying to keep the the sheep moving in the same direction. Their eyes and their ears are constantly on the shepherd, trying to figure out where he's leading, what he wants, what he's doing. And they're just responding to his will. And that's the motive and the picture that Peter presents here. That those called to lead in whatever context, but especially to the elders, that your calling is to keep your eyes on the great shepherd, And then to shepherd, not for your own gain, not for your own pride, not to get or preserve your own power, but to serve, to lay it down, to give your life away. In our tradition, you know, I know I want to say just for a few minutes here, you know, a lot of uh, we are a Presbyterian church, uh, and yet most of our members don't come from a Presbyterian context. Uh, Right? I'll I'll regularly have uh, people come to the membership class. And say, oh, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm a Presbyterian. And you go, well, actually, most people coming to our church uh, aren't initially Presbyterian. Uh, and one of the distinctives of the way that a Presbyterian church is led is that we believe in the plurality of elders. Uh, right? That every church isn't meant to just be led by a charismatic, gifted, strong pastor. Right? But that we need a plurality, meaning multiple lay pastors. That's really what an elder is. It's a lay pastor. Lay meaning that they uh, they have another job, 
right? Uh, they're serving, uh, you know, they're not getting paid to do this. So we'll distinguish uh, in our tradition between pastors and ruling elders, teaching elders and ruling elders. So I, as a, as a pastor, am, am especially trained, set apart to preach, to do the sacraments, to pastor. Uh, but the elders are fellow lay pastors. They're not a board of directors that sits off in a room somewhere making decisions, though they do have an executive function. But their role is to pastor, to be pastors with you and among you. That I should be able, like Peter, to relate to these elders as fellow elders, one among many. We believe that this is a system uh, that, uh, that, that does multiple things. One, it helps to distribute the care of the church, right? It's too much for one person to care meaningfully and relationally for a church. It also provides a safe system of accountability and support, right? That I'm, I, don't, uh, I don't just uh, get to rule the church as my own little fiefdom, right? If I... Uh, find myself in a place where I need pastoral care, where I need correction, where I need encouragement. They're there with me and for me. They're giving me their wisdom. Right? I am still bare. Uh, I still am officially in my thirties, uh, almost 39, no 39. Dang, I'm old. Um, but it would be a bad thing for a church. Uh, if the oldest and wisest, the person in, in unquestioned leadership was a young man in his thirties. Right? It's good for us to have a, a diversity of voices in the room exercising leadership. Right? It's good for us to have godly elders. It's good for us to have humble deacons and deaconesses contributing their voices into the care and leadership of our church. And so in whatever capacity you lead, whether it's as one of our elders, uh, whether it's as a deacon or a deaconess, whether it's uh, working in the children's ministry, leading or contributing to a group, whether it's uh, working with or leading a team. Peter's example here, his word here to us is do it humbly, do it as a servant, do it out of love and not out of compulsion or out of pride. And then he calls not only those in church leadership to humility, but also those in church membership. Verse five, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This phrase here, you who are younger, doesn't just narrowly mean you who are generationally younger. Uh, he's basically talking, he said, look, some of you in a church are elders and others of you are not elders. So on the spectrum of uh, elder to not elder, uh, the younger that he's addressing are those who in this situation are being asked to trust and in some ways submit their life to the direction and care of these spiritual elders and shepherds and pastors. And he's saying there to do so with humility, to do so with a gentle spirit, to do so without uh, grumbling, to do so without complaint or gossip. You know, it is... Uh, the dynamic of leaders complaining about their people and people complaining about their leaders is a dynamic that we see in the Bible going all the way back at least to Exodus, right? What seems to happen between Moses and the people every second chapter is they get mad at him. He, so they complain to him. He complains to God about them, right? And then God either punishes or relents, but there's this cycle that can happen. 
between people and their leaders where there's a cycle of grumbling against one another. God, why didn't you give us better pastors? Why didn't you give us better elders? And then pastors going to, their, to God and going, God, why didn't you give me a different church? A bigger church, a church without so many difficult people, uh, whatever it might be, a church that, that gives more money. Whatever it is, we get into a place with one another where our hearts are marked, not by love, mutual submission and service, but by pride, complaint, gossip, and arrogance. And so what happens in that setting? Well, in the U.S., I'll tell you what happens in that setting. People leave churches, right? You go to find a church uh, that, that you fit in better, where you like the, the shepherding direction better. And pastors hop around at churches, right? Pastors go from church to church. People go from church to church. Usually because we're trying to run away from the hard work of loving the actual people that God's put in our lives. Running away from the actual flawed human beings that God has given us as elders and shepherds or that he's given to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Almost all of the rules for monastic communities, that is communities of monks and nuns who've gathered together uh, for the explicit purpose of seeking one another's formation in Christ. Most of those rules, whether it be the rule of St. Benedict, which is the most, uh, most known one, or some of the Eastern uh, rules of monasticism, most of them contain two things, almost universally, which are uh, stability, and submission. Stability simply means that if, if Christ is going to be formed in me, it's going to happen here. It's going to happen with these people, these monks that I'm not sure I like anymore, this abbot that I'm not sure I agree with. But if, I, if Christ is going to be formed in me, he's going to be formed in community. And that's only going to happen if I don't leave, if I don't run, if I don't complain, if I don't grumble, if I don't, uh, if I don't look for uh, greener grass elsewhere that God grows us in a posture of submission and in a stable community. The author of Hebrews uh, put the same sentiment this way in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, I want you to know that I take those words very seriously. Look at those. Look at that. They are keeping watch over your souls as, to, as, as those who will have to give an account. Someday I will be accountable before God for what I did in the lives of the people who are members of our church. Someday our elders will be accountable before God, not just for their own lives, but for your life. That is a heavy weight to feel. And every time new members join our church, I feel it. Can I, can I fulfill my part of Hebrews 13? Taking real responsibility in love for you and your life and your family and your vocations. And the posture that's asked of you is one of humility, submission, joy, and a lack of groaning. That in that together, we can have a church that's free of the toxicity that leads to, to danger, that leads to an unhealthy church environment, 
that leads to a church environment of suspicion and complaint, abuse, self-protection, right? It is not, you know, I'm essentially here giving a sermon in defense of organized religion in a world in which organized religion is very much not popular. But the, the alternative is disorganization. The alternative is a community in which no one takes responsibility, where there's no one uh, giving forethought and love and care and pouring their lives into the life of the church. And Peter's, Peter's words here are, organize yourselves, elders and people, towards health, away from pride, towards humility, and towards mutual love. I'll finish with this. Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor and psychologist, his book on the church, he titled The Safest Place on Earth, because it was his belief, and it is my belief, that the church is meant to be a safe place for broken people like you and I to find healing in Christ. It's meant to be the safest place on earth, but we know far too often it's not. And Crabb writes this, the context for human healing and growth in Christ is meant to be the church. Only humility in the posture of Christ-like mutual service makes for a safe community. I'm sorry, that's not the, those were my words. That's not his words. <laughs> you can quote that if you want. That's pretty good. Um, but here's his words. A central task of community is to create a safe place that is safe enough for the walls to be torn down. Safe enough for each of us to own and reveal our brokenness. Only then can community be used of God to restore our souls. Friends, the church is the safest place on earth because Jesus is at our center. And he's teaching us his way of humility. In a few moments, we'll come around the communion table, uh, even if virtually, as a reminder that Jesus himself is the shepherd of our souls. He is the center of our community. He is the one who feeds us, who shepherds us, who guides us. It's his body and blood that feeds us. He is our life. Let's all together seek him in a posture of humility. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would fill our church with the humility that makes for genuine life-giving community that you would cut out of us the cancer of human pride and arrogance, out of all of us, that you would help us to take the posture of servants as Christ, as those who lay down our lives in love for our brothers and for our sisters, for our shepherds and for our people. Lord Jesus, I do pray especially uh, for the elders and leaders of our church. Um, those of us who do lead as those who are accountable before you for our shepherding and oversight of the church. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would keep us humble, keep us broken, keep us safe uh, through a familiarity with our own need of a savior. Lord, I pray for all who lead and who speak and who serve in our church, that we would do so as those who daily know our need of grace uh, through our familiarity with our sin. That we would do so as those who acknowledge uh, the gifts that you've given us uh, and who steward and shepherd them uh, with faithfulness. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would bless us uh, with the results of a fruitful uh, and life-giving and non-toxic church and ministry.
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.